Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast once again. And as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. With us in the studio today is a fellow Slate podcaster, Gabriel Roth, uh, and I'm really looking forward to throwing him into the mix shortly. But first... Uh, I I have an important update for all of you out there and also a request uh, for those of you who have the knowledge and the desire to share uh, some opinions with us, which is that my producer, Audrey, just told me as I walked into the studio today that she has just started watching Star Trek. Um, I needed a minute. I had to sit down. This is very important to me. My favorite thing in the world is when people just start watching Star Trek. By the way, if you don't like Star Trek, that's fine. You don't have to. I would never want to push Star Trek on someone who did not want to love it. Um, But if you do want to love it, you will. I I can tell you right now that becoming uh, someone who loves Star Trek uh, requires only willingness or even the willingness to become willing. Um, And and I think she's already there. Uh, She's starting with TNG and immediately uh, Jim, the sound engineer, I just started screaming at her movies that she needs to start watching immediately and movies she needs to pretend never existed. So right now, I think we've got her on TNG, then Voyager, then the original series, because she gave it a try and she's not yet ready to accept Jim Kirk as her personal lord and savior, which is fine. She'll get there. I understand it. I have absolute faith uh, in her innate goodness. Um, She's not allowed to watch Generations. She is allowed to watch First Contact. I feel like those are pretty basic steps, which is not to say, by the way, No one can ever watch Generations. I'll never watch it again for as long as I live. Um, But you you can. You just you need to be prepared for it. There's there's things you need to have settled uh, in your own heart of hearts um, before you're ready to go through the process of experiencing Generations. And I would never want to inflict that uh, on somebody who hadn't trained for years. Um, So Audrey, uh, who has already thrown her hat across the room in in exasperation, um, you you know not what you have signed up for. Uh, that seems like a great place to introduce our guest. Uh, Gabriel Roth is the host of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, a parenting podcast from Slate. He's also a senior editor uh, at Slate uh, and the editorial director for Slate Plus. Gabriel, welcome. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Have you ever seen Star Trek Generations? I don't think I've seen Star Trek Generations, no. Okay. Well, that is something you do not need to add to the list of things you need to do. Continue living your life without having seen it. I'm glad to know I've been doing that right the whole time. Is there anything that you would add to to the list that we have already given, Audrey? Um, you know, my Star Trek uh, foo isn't really deep enough to challenge yours. So um, I'm sure Audrey's doing it just fine. Well, that's a very diplomatic and kind answer. And I just, again, want to make it really clear. As much or as little Star Trek as a person wants to have in their life is a beautiful thing. If you only love Star Trek a little, love it a little. That's great. I'm very happy for you. Um, I would never want anyone to feel like they needed to love it more just because it's the only thing I care about. I think the only Star Trek I remember is there was a movie with whales. They went to San Francisco and there were whales. The only (laughs) Star Trek movie you've seen is the journey home? Can I just wind back the tape to a minute ago where you said as much or as little Star no, Trek? No, as no, a no, no. I'm so sorry. The, the like incredulity in my voice is not one of like you ridiculous person. Uh, it, it's just that's like I, I would I I don't know how that happens. I don't know how you get to to Star Trek Four uh, all all on its own. I mean, it's amazing. I love the one with whales. It's 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 beautiful. You get. You get Spock mind melding with whales. You get you get that great scene on the bus. It's it's a fantastic movie. I just I, yeah, I want to like know nine and there was a movie of Star Trek and there were whales. It's all coming back to me. I mean, it's all coming back to me like three words: Star Trek and whales. Yeah, um, no, no more than that is coming back to me. You are remembering it correctly. There are whales in it, and um, you 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 know what? You got it. You got the full Star Trek experience. It's pretty much a show about whales. Um, it's basically I'm, I'm, I'm that a, SeaWorld documentary. I'm a trekker now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, now that we've gotten all of that settled, um, I would love to apologize in advance for giving you a lot of questions about really thorny, difficult parenting issues, um, but also not really apologize because I still want you to help me answer them. Love parenting issues. Love what? 
Do you have any general advice for listeners out there who might parent or be adjacent to parenting at some point in their life before we? Yeah, I mean. It, it turns out that many of us have some relationship to parenting, that even if you think you've never parented, you may well have been parented. Uh, mm. And you can look to that experience of having been parented as a sort of guideline for what works and what doesn't work. What, what did you like about being parented? And maybe more importantly, what did you very, very strongly dislike? And it's always good to react really strongly and extremely against the things that your parents did uh, that you didn't like um, and just go all the way over to the other end of the spectrum because um, that way you're sure not to make any mistakes. That's That sounds pretty solid. So you have uh, from the senior editor at Slate uh, a guarantee that you will not make mistakes as a parent if you listen to the rest of the show, which I think is a pretty solid endorsement. Um, and on that note, I think we should just dive right in. Let's do it. As Spock dived in with the whales in the voyage home. I'm so sorry I said that. I love that you said that. It happened. Uh, Would you read our first letter while I, you know, deal with my shame? Absolutely. Uh, The subject line on this letter is, how do I protect my kids from my narcissistic husband? Hi, Prudy. I started therapy several months ago after a bout of depression and anxiety. After some digging, I realized a lot of my issues were tied to my husband and his possibly undiagnosed personality disorder. Though my therapist and I cannot diagnose him, we are both fairly certain that he is a textbook narcissist. For me, this felt like a weight was lifted. The criticism, the demands to be perfect and to never make mistakes, being treated like I am beneath him and stupid, all while spending day in and day out listening to him obsess over other people's money and success, schemes to get rich, etc. The problem is, we have two small children that he is equally hard on. There are plenty of good times, but good times don't put people in therapy. The older they get, the more he yells, screams, throws tantrums when they make simple mistakes that all children make. We walk on eggshells to please him, which is a losing game. My fear is that if I leave him, he will be alone with them for visitation, and that is a bad idea. But if I stay, they are exposed to him more often. I feel stuck and have no idea what to do. Man, so this is obviously a heavy one. So I just want to start by pointing out something I loved about this letter, which is that there's so clearly a line in here that the letter writer got from her therapist, which is, there are good times, but I know good times don't put people in therapy. And I just, I don't know, I found that really charming. Like, Hmm. that's wonderful that you got there. And I love that you threw that little nugget from your therapist in here. Thank you for doing that. Hmm. Also, I like the caveat that... um, Although my therapist and I cannot diagnose him, we are both fairly certain that he is a textbook narcissist. Everybody is um, trying really hard to get that right these days now that we're all starting to uh, diagnose people's personality disorders long distance. Yes. And and I do think that that's worthwhile because I have noticed that as well. It is a trend now in letters, uh, whereas I think people used to just say, I believe this person has such and such personality disorder. Now they will say, I know I can't make this diagnosis myself. And then they will say it anyways. Right, Um, exactly. And what they're really saying is, this guy is a fucking narcissistic asshole. This guy is an extreme personality. And like that is a thing that you can say as a person who absorbs him by virtue of being married to him. Right. And and I think sometimes the reason that people will feel like there's a need to have a term for it is because they feel like otherwise it's not enough on its own. Um, That's right. He may very well have a particular personality disorder. He also may not. You don't need to worry about that. Um, You've got enough with he's always criticizing me, demands that I'm perfect, yells at me and treats me like I'm stupid. That's enough right there to. That's exactly right. Your problem is you're married to a narcissistic asshole. Yeah, exactly. Whether or not there's a formal diagnosis for it, don't worry about it. He's a jerk. He's being a jerk to you. You don't need to worry about that. But these are both really minor points. I I, I do want to get to the, the. the sort of main question here, which I feel like is, you know, is it okay for me to leave? Like, am I allowed mm. to leave? And won't it be worse if he gets visitation by himself? Am I not, in fact, doing more good by staying and cushioning some of the blows? Um, which I feel like you and I are probably going to have the same answer to. I think we are. Um, and, and I think that answer is going to be like, nah, get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't think that it's actually better for your kids um, to live with your husband full time and to see him yelling at you and at them constantly. Um, and to I don't see actually you think. throw your body in between him and them and then wake up the next day and do it over and over again. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I also think, you know, um, filing for divorce, you can also petition for supervised visitation. I mean, these are issues that you can raise in your custody agreement, um, which are, you know, 
my husband screams at our kids. Um, and that's not to say that you will be automatically granted sole custody and you'll be able to control the way that he acts around your children. But um, that's absolutely, uh, you know, push for maximal custody, whatever that looks like. Um, yeah. I think that that would be good for you and your children. That's exactly right. Talk to a divorce lawyer. A divorce lawyer can tell you, like, if, if you begin documenting your husband's behavior, write down in as neutral a way as you can the things that he says and does at particular dates and times. And then after you've collected some information, take, or to, take it to a divorce lawyer and say, I think it's harmful for this guy to be around my children. I think when we divorce, he should not get unsupervised visitation rights. Do you think that's achievable? And the, uh, from the description, it seems to me like it should be, but a, a divorce lawyer can give you a, a more informed answer. Right. And, you know, even if, uh, you know, unfortunately, like being a jerk of a parent does not necessarily uh, mean anything when it comes to custody agreements. It is not illegal to be a jerk to your kid. Um, but if nothing else, for your kids to see from you um, a, a really clear denunciation of the way that he treats you and them. And for you to say, it's not okay. This is not how I want to be treated by a partner. This is not how I want my kids to be treated on a daily basis. To see you create a different kind of home um, where they will hopefully be able to spend more of their time and to see the difference. Like, they're always going to grow up with this guy as their dad. And unless he makes some serious changes, um, they're always going to see that side of him. But they will, at the very least, the one thing you can control is what they see from you. And, like, if they are able to spend more of their time with you and see how he is and then see how you are and the difference between those two, I think that would be really good for your children to say, like, I don't want that in my life. Um, I don't want to end up like that. I don't want to be partnered with people like that. Uh, I want to make the kind of choices that I see my mother modeling. Um, and I think that that would be incredibly good for your kids. I agree with that 100%. She's if nothing get... else, yeah, to get a break so that it's yeah. not 24-7 of when is dad going to lose it again. Um, yeah. yeah. No, and I, I mean, I appreciate you're pointing out that it's not all a nightmare, but I just also want to say, letter writer, you do not mention any good times in your letter. There's nothing in your letter that sounds good to me, especially when it's something that's unpredictable. You never know when it's going to switch from everything's great, we've got fun dad, to uh, you're all holding me back, dragging me down, you're all the worst, I could have done all these things if I weren't tied to any of you, and you're all like terrible people. Um, that's awful to never know when the next like axe is going to fall. Yep. Yep. And this is the way with, of course, uh, you know, we can't diagnose anybody uh, without having met them or, or seen them. Or in having some or, sort of medical or psychiatric degree. Yeah, yep, exactly. There's all kinds of reasons why we can't diagnose anybody. But one thing about um, narcissistic personalities uh, is that when you are like within the circle of their affection, that can feel very good. Right. Yeah. When you get to bask in their reflected self-love, then narcissists can be very appealing people. Uh, but when you know that that can turn on and off on a dime, depending on whether you are like the good part of me or the bad part of me that I have to expel or whatever, right. uh, that is not a healthy identity for a kid to grow up with. Yep. Yep. Um I think uh, this next one is going to be a nice palate cleanser in between some serious family things. But I love this because I don't get enough questions about tipping. Um, mm -hmm. And this question is all about tipping. And uh, if there's one thing I've learned from being on the Internet is that there is no shortage of opinions about tipping. Um, and I'm excited to wade into the debate. Let's so the go. subject of this is just bad tipper, question mark. Dear Prudence, I live on a tight budget, but decided to treat myself to a massage for my birthday. A local massage therapist was offering half-price massages through Groupon, and I decided to try it. After purchasing the massage, I was directed to her website, which was the only way to book with her, and discovered there was an additional $15 booking fee. Somehow, I was charged twice for the booking fee, so my half-price massage ended up being full price. When I emailed the therapist about the extra charge, she responded that I needed to read the fine print and didn't believe that I was charged twice, parentheses, I was... And that was that. I thought this was rather rude, but I'd already paid for the massage at that point, and I was determined to keep the appointment, even though I was pretty sure she had lost my future business. I also determined that the extra money I was charged would serve as her tip, and so did not give her an additional tip the day of the massage. Was I wrong? Was I being too sensitive? This sounds like a really fun massage. Super <laughs> Can you relaxing. Imagine? Can you imagine going in mad at your massage therapist? 
there if there is one thing that makes a massage more relaxing and enjoyable it's bitter monetary resentment hating the person who is touching your body feeling like super ripped off by this massage therapist and just like i can't wait till i get to stiff them on the tip yep this is i mean that's just gonna be a great massage this yeah this sounded awful uh i'm I'm sorry for the both of you I, i cannot imagine either being massaged by a person i was mad at uh or massaging someone that i was mad at those those both sound terrible oh and it's your birthday Oh, and it's your birthday. I'm really sorry, letter writer. I don't mean to laugh at your misfortune, but this really sounds like a bummer and a half all the way around. Um, So tipping. Sure. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, I don't believe I have ever been so upset with a a service provider that I didn't tip uh, as like a show of of my, my feelings, but... That is an option people have in the world. Like, it is something you can do uh, if it feels really important to you to uh, express displeasure with the service. Like, it's not um, it's not illegal. You're not going to be shunned from society. It should probably be something that you reserve for pretty, uh, pretty serious situations. But you can do it. You're allowed. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a there's a line here where like, let's say you go to let's say you get a massage and the massage is just not a very good massage and the massage therapist doesn't seem to be like really giving it their all or whatever. Sure. And you're disgruntled and you think maybe you want to stiff them on the tip. I don't think you should. Maybe you shouldn't tip with your usual generosity or whatever. But like I think the tip is part of the fee for the service in that – like for waiters, for massage therapists, for taxi drivers. Like the tipping is part of how they earn their living and like right. don't be an asshole. And it should be if, it should be a real last resort, right? Like right. if you're in the middle well, of a massage so, – sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I, I guess I'm saying there's a line between like poor service, like a bad massage, and then the massage therapist has actually ripped you off. Ah, okay. Like, if we stipulate that this person did get charged twice, uh, like they got charged the service fee two times, and they pointed that out and gave the massage therapist a chance to redress the problem, and the massage therapist said, no, you weren't charged twice. If we stipulate that that sequence of events happened, then I think it's fair to say, you know what? I've already tipped you. You've already sure. gotten your tip. Enjoy, and thank you for the massage. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's distinct from getting a massage and thinking this is not exactly what I wanted, where probably a better thing would be to say – can you focus on this area or can you use more pressure or or try to redress it in the moment rather than wait until the end um, to like hand some sort of punishment out as you're on the way out the door? Yeah. And and in the end, when you get a bad massage, you don't go back to that massage person and that's the cost of doing business. But when somebody actually like rips you off and won't fix it, then yeah, fine. You, there's a sort of rough justice to then refusing to tip that person. Would you have gone and gotten this massage if you were at the point where you had said, uh, I was charged twice here, you can see on the receipt. And they just said, nope, doesn't look like anything to me. Like they were Bernard from Westworld. Um, spoilers gr- for Westworld, everyone. <laughs> it's a great question. I haven't seen Westworld. Are there any whales in Westworld? At some point, someone doesn't see a door. It's not really a spoiler if you don't know anything else. But if you're part through sounds, the season, I've just ruined everything for you. Sounds super spooky. Um, <laughs> I, I I think I like it's a tough one about would you get the massage because as the letter writer says, I've already paid for the massage, right? So you right. can either feel ripped off and not get a massage or you can feel ripped off and get a massage from someone that you're mad at. And, and neither of those seems like a great way to spend your birthday. In a way, like the lesson here is Groupon sucks because nobody who offers a Groupon can make money out of doing Groupon. So there's always some kind of hustle involved. Wait, and, so they're and, already kind of upset that they feel they have to use Groupon to get business? Yeah. And yeah. and they're looking for ways to cut corners and, and not lose their shirt on giving you providing a service for you. And you are trying to get a deal, but you're going to wind up also getting some bad feeling around it, uh, you know, 30% of the time or whatever it is. Right. I guess now Groupon will never be offering to sponsor this podcast. Um, that's Sorry, fine. Groupon. They haven't they haven't tried to sponsor it before, so I don't feel like I've done anything wrong by uh, joining you and complaining about that service. And I've never done Groupon, and it may be a wonderful thing. But you hear about this kind of thing happening a lot, and you hear that restaurants and service providers fucking hate it. And the letter writer says, I, I'm on a tight budget, and, and I decided to treat myself to a birthday massage. And so maybe this was the only way that person could get a massage on their birthday. But, like, a tough one. 
really tough. Right. Well, and this is where, and I feel like maybe this is more of where my thoughts have landed because, you know, again, like, you know, this was about getting kind of taken advantage of financially and, and I can understand why you felt like you'd already offered the tip. Um, but part of what's difficult is there's there's sort of two uh, competing forces at play, one of which is um, you should not have to be an incredibly wealthy person to be able to occasionally get a massage. Like it's... Um, really a good thing to be able to do for your body. Uh, we we do a lot to our bodies throughout the day and it's pretty exhausting and it can be really, uh, really helpful for, for like just pain and discomfort to get an occasional massage and you should not have to fork out, you know, like hundreds of dollars to, to, to get that. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, uh, massage is both intimate and highly skilled. Um, so it's difficult to, to try to look for discounts um, and bargains um, in a way that it would not be for purchasing like a shoe, even if it was like a, a, a used shoe, you can still get a really great used shoe for way less than new shoes. Um, but but discount massages, um, you know, often like in either direction of price, uh, either the person who's providing this skilled service or the person who's trying to get some relief for for pain and stress, um, somebody's getting stiffed in a way that's really tough to figure out how to navigate. Yeah, this so is I think the crazy... government should subsidize massages. Well, I do agree with that, like that it should be included in, in a comprehensive national insurance program should include sort of soft medical care like massage therapy. This this is a complete tangent, but there's a, a, a line from the autobiography of Agatha Christie, which you've probably read. Um, but Nicole which... has read me all of the relevant parts uh, <laughs> right. very loudly over the phone. All right. Well, there's a line where she looks back on her childhood and says, when I was a kid, I never imagined that we would be rich enough to have an automobile or poor enough not to have servants. Hmm. And it it blows your mind until you realize that like physical goods get cheaper and, and personal services get more expensive. Yep. And so now everyone can have a car and only really rich people get to have servants. But so things like massages become more and more and more expensive. Uh, and that sucks because massages are great and we need them. And as you say, the government should fund them. Well, we got way off track, but uh, we at least we were did. able to reassure this letter writer that uh, at least in their particular instance, they had already paid this person a tip. Um, and for the rest of us, um, you should probably tip people unless they have run over your dog, in which case, you know, feel free to stiff them. Literally um, tip, except when the person has stolen money from you already. Uh, in yeah. which case, don't tip and then feel vindicated. Yeah. No, it's it's built in often to how much people are paid and you should be tipping on a really, really regular basis. Um, moving on, uh, let's talk about uh, children who don't like us. Do you want to take this one? I do. This one is called uh, Indifferent Stepson. I, I, that's the subject head of the letter. I don't know that that's a formal title. Um, this This letter is headed Indifferent Stepson. It's wonderful. I have been married to my husband for three years. We have a child together, and my husband has two adult children from his previous marriage. My husband and I have a wonderful marriage, and I love his family as my own. We do have some unique qualities to our relationship, though. My husband is 18 years older than me, so his kids are around my age. They don't mind the age difference. They just want to see their dad happy, which he is. I get along great with his daughter and her family but I've always felt like his son has an issue with me. He's polite to me, but that's it. He's never really warmed up to me. I've made jokes in the past that he's shot down. I've tried having him and his fiance over, and he stays pretty quiet the whole time. I would like to know if there's something wrong, and I've asked my husband, but he doesn't know of anything. I don't really feel like trying anymore, and I just want to start acting polite yet indifferent to his son, but I think that may cause issues with my husband. I don't want my husband to have hurt feelings. How do I approach this? Or do I say anything at all? Should I have my husband talk to his son? His son is somewhat shy, but I'd think that after three years, he'd be used to me by now. How do I solve this? How does she solve this, Gabe? Well, I should say I have some personal experience here. After my father died, my mother remarried, and I acquired a stepfather. And I did not like it. And this is a great case study for other people who don't like their stepmothers or stepfathers or whose stepchildren don't like them uh, because my stepfather is objectively an incredible and awesome person and he makes my mother really happy and he's a delight to spend time with. And I knew that very well when they got married and it didn't make any difference because what I objected to was the fact of having a stepfather. I didn't want mm -hmm. a stepfather. It sucked. 
And so the thing to remember here for the letter writer, I think, um, is that the stepson, he doesn't have a problem with you, right? He, he has a problem with his father's newish wife who is much younger, right? Well, and, and, uh, she says that they don't mind the age difference. Well, she says that. I, I mean, maybe it's not the age difference. Maybe it's just the fact of the stepfather. And maybe, uh, excuse me, maybe it's just the fact of the stepmother. Uh, and maybe there's something about the letter writer that is off-putting in a way that she doesn't recognize. But um, it, it, it seems more kind of generous to the son to assume that he, he doesn't really want anyone filling this slot for whatever reason of his own. And you got to maybe give him some space with that. She's tried making jokes. The jokes didn't work. And I love jokes. I love solving interpersonal problems with jokes. Some problems cannot be solved with jokes. And, and, and maybe the problem is that she's married to his father. I was just thinking about that because I, I was looking at this slightly differently. I think that's absolutely a possibility. Um, but I was kind of curious, like she acknowledges that her stepson is shy. Um, and of course, I, I don't know what other strategies she has employed in trying to get to know him better. But the only one that she mentions is making jokes. She doesn't get specific about how he shot them down. Um, but part of me is wondering, um, you know, some people are shy in a way that does not respond to jokes until they feel like they know you and they're comfortable with you. It's possible that another approach like, you know, asking questions about what's going on with his life um, letting him and his fiance take a little bit more of a lead in the conversation, not pushing for things to be uh, really like jokey, lighthearted, like trading barbs with one another um, might be more useful in terms of getting him to feel comfortable around you. Um, I, that did not feel like that's definitely what's going on, but it's certainly a possibility. Um, yeah, like for somebody I, I who's mean, shy, doesn't really know you, and you're just trying to make a lot of jokes, it might kind of feel like, okay, we're not at that level of our relationship. Please stop. Yeah, maybe her jokes are obnoxious. Like, what? we don't know what kind of jokes these are. Maybe these are like jokes about his appearance. Lay I would really like jokes. a list of the jokes that you have made. Please, <laughs> yeah. please write and back. <laughs> record them so we can tell your timing. Maybe your timing was off with the jokes. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, that's right. And maybe they just need to figure out how to get along together. And maybe she is not great at getting along with this guy. Um, but I do think, like, step the step-parent relationship is like famously fraught, right? So many fairy mm -hmm. tales are based on like my step-parent wants to murder me. Mm -hmm. This is like deeply entrenched and it's deeply entrenched for some reasons, right? Like people are used to like privileging their own kids over their partners, kids from other marriages. This does happen in real life and has always happened. Um, and even if this is a nice stepmom, um, again, maybe he's not in the market for a nice stepmom. The good news about me is to get back to me. Mm -hmm. Um, my stepfather is now one of my top five favorite human beings. And, and whenever I go visit my mom and him, then we embrace warmly and we fall naturally into conversation on all manner of topics. And, and maybe this will be, you know, 15 years down the road, maybe the letter writer and, and her stepson will have just as warm and, and friendly a relationship that I have with my stepfather. Um, yeah. But but I think the first thing to do is, like, not really expect him to immediately welcome you into his father's home and marriage. Right. And to bear in mind that even though, you know, you have been married for three years, you have a child together, um, you know, at least in terms of your stepson's life, that's not um, necessarily as long a time as it might feel to you. Uh, I, right. I will say this about the, 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 you know, driving question of this letter is, like, can I— give up. I, I think the actual phrase she uses is, I don't really feel like trying anymore. Um, so some good news, some bad news. Uh, yes, you absolutely can also be polite, but like a little more reserved with him. You do not have to, every time you see him or every time he comes over, jump through a lot of hoops to try to get him to become really, really close with you. But you, you do still have to try. Like you, you have to be one degree more than polite to him. Um, you've got to be friendly. Um, That's right. You don't you don't have to crack him up. You don't try to have to draw him out of his shell. Um, but even though you guys are close in age, um, you know, you're married to his dad, which puts you in in a position um, of some I, I won't say like authority over him exactly. But like there's a there's a power to your relationship with his father that he does not share. Um, you know, That's you exactly are not right. you are not a child in this family. And um, that I think that relationship differential puts the onus on the letter writer to be the bigger person. Right. Which and and means, I know 
they don't want to. They kind of are feeling like, well, we're the right. same age. He's not really showing anything. Can I just treat him the way I would a peer who wasn't being super friendly, which is like, hey, Jim, nice to see you. Bye. Right. But but she has to be the bigger person, which means be warm to him, as warm as you can manage, and also not expect more from him than he can offer you. Right. Because let's bear in mind, too, he's not being rude. He's not freezing you out. Um, he's not telling your husband that he hates you. Um, you know, it may very well be just that he's kind of much more reserved than his sister. And your husband uh, does not appear to have any information um, that, that suggests that his step that his son doesn't like you. So um, to to remember that he might be a little reserved, it doesn't mean he hates you. It just means you guys aren't going to have the same kind of connection that you have with his sister. Um, and that needs to be okay. You're always going to have a different relationship with him than you do with his sister. Um, and to let it be what it is, um, to to let go of some of the expectations you might have had, but to always maintain like an open door such that if he ever did decide he wanted to get to know you a little better or open up a little bit more, um, you would be ready. Uh, not like living in hope, but you would be able to meet him if he did that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's uh, take the next one, which is, uh, man, so many moms today, moms and yeah. stepmoms running all over the place, um, bringing up thorny issues. The subject line of this one is intruding at a funeral. Dear Prudence, I just found out that my high school boyfriend's mother died. I haven't seen her in about two decades, but during the almost four years that I dated her son, she was like a second mom to me, especially when my own wasn't available to actively parent. I loved her a lot. I'm no longer in contact with any of their family, and I haven't seen or heard from any of them since the early 2000s. Is it weird or intrusive to show up at a funeral for someone you haven't seen in years? I'm not always really socially confident, and I don't want to make anyone, especially my ex and his wife, uncomfortable. This is what's so complicated about funerals because there are no invitations. Weddings, you get invited or you're not invited. And you know either you're going to be asked to go or not. And funerals, no one sends out invitations. So there's just this general sense of, am I allowed? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think there's a principle that applies to funerals, which is the more the merrier. Like, although mm -hmm. merrier isn't quite what you're going for with a funeral, but like a, a, a good funeral is packed, right? A good yep. funeral has like bums on seats. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we want from our our nearest and dearest funerals. Unless, you know, with the caveat, if there is someone who, if they saw you, would run screaming. Yeah, that's bad. Uh, that's in which bad. case, you know, reconsider. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely. Like, you no, know, you're not in close contact with them. You wouldn't necessarily be going over for, for lunch. But she was a really meaningful part of your life. You remembered her really fondly. You don't, you know... You and your high school boyfriend presumably have both moved on. Like, he's married. It's not like you guys dated just a few years ago and it ended really badly. Like, um, I don't think it would be painful for his wife to see his high school girlfriend. Um, so yeah, I, I, th I think you should go. I, and, and if it would make you feel better if you have contact information for this ex, um, you know, to send like a note uh, or, or a message somehow just saying, I'm so sorry about your mom's loss and or your the loss of your mom and, and to just say one or two things that she really about how she meant a lot to you um just so they're kind of aware that you remember her really fondly and and that you're thinking of her but but yeah absolutely go the other thing you can do in the note is you can say like i would love to go to the funeral if it's not just for close friends and family and you can yeah. sort of give him an opportunity to like warn you off if he really doesn't want to see you Right. But presumably, I mean, I assume they're asking this question because they know where the service is going to be held. Yeah, um, that's true. Because otherwise I feel like they would ask. Um, so, you know, if the if the information about where and when the service is going to be has been made public, um, you know, implicit in that is you can come even if you're not in close regular contact with us. If you have some something you shared with this woman uh, and you want to remember her with us, please come. That's true. But if she's worried that the ex-boyfriend, the high school boyfriend, is going to feel upset at her being there, she can give him the opportunity to make a sort of white lie. To, right. To, to warn her off and say, well, it's really only for the family, even if that isn't true. And they both know it isn't true. It's a way of sort of signaling, actually, I'd be happier if you didn't come. But as you said, I think that seems really unlikely to me. The, the, what you want at a funeral is people from all throughout the span of the dead person's life, right? Right. You not just, just the people want... you yourself know. You want to see like wonderful surprises of I did not even know 
that my like loved one touched all these people's lives in, in all that's these different right. ways. Like, the son's high school girlfriend, that's like a perfect person to see at a funeral. The like right. person who you haven't seen in 20 years, but your mom still meant a lot to them and your mom is still in her heart. You want uh, like you want all those people that I want when I die, I want my children's high school boyfriends and girlfriends to be there like quietly weeping for me and for their lost youth or whatever. Oh, my gosh. That yes. Would I, be, and like I want your high school boyfriends and girlfriends at my funeral thinking about what a great person I was, even though we haven't met and are in no way connected. That's what I, I want. now like now I feel like I will go to my grave unhappy if I don't think that my children's high school partners are going to be at my funeral. It it just seems I'm more and more talking myself into like, no, you should fucking go with a T-shirt saying high school girlfriend. Live live your life in such a way that if you have children and they date in high school, uh, those people 20, 30 years from now will be showing up at your funeral, even though they haven't talked to your stupid kid in 20 years. That, uh, that's exactly right. Because they There's remember another... you more fondly than their high school boyfriend and girlfriend. Totally. They, I, and the boyfriend will love to hear her say, like, so like the letter writer says in the, in the letter, there's a nice detail where she says, like, I'm not always really socially confident. Hmm. And so presumably there's some amount of anxiety in her around going to this funeral because yeah. will she know the right thing to say? And the other awesome thing about funerals is you always know the right thing to say because the right thing to say is always, God, I'm so sorry about your mother. And, and literally if, any nice thing you remember about their their mother. That's right. If she wants to get into a nostalgic conversation with him, she can say, you know, your mother was so kind to me and, and she made a big difference to me at a time when I really needed someone to help me out in the way that she did. And if he wants to pursue it, he can pursue it and she can follow his lead. Yeah. 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 I'm so excited for her to go to this funeral now. I am too. Yeah. So send the note. Um, and then, you know, it, it may be that you won't hear anything back in part just because uh, he's probably really busy planning his mom's memorial service. Um, but unless you hear, please don't come. It's for f close friends and family only. You should you have implicit permission to attend. If she doesn't attend, then frankly, I don't know what she should. I mean, if she doesn't yeah. attend. I think yeah. you should go. I think you should She's go unless go. you are told not to. Um, I think that, that is generally the rule with funerals. So Go to the funeral. Always go. Yep. All right. Next one. Uh, All right. Why don't you take us away on that one? Sure. This one uh, has the subject line, unwilling homophobe. I grew up in a very Christian conservative environment and was taught that homosexuality was wrong. I believed this until I went to a liberal school and met openly gay people for the first time and realized that, nope, people are people. I became good friends with a gay woman who I'll call Abigail, and when we both got jobs in the same city after graduating, we became roommates. I lecture my family about being stuck in the Stone Age when they express disapproval of my living with her. Then Abigail found a girlfriend, Betty. Abigail and Betty became inseparable overnight. Betty is over almost every evening and weekend, and they are always, always touching. I'm really glad for Abigail since she's happy after being single for a long time, and I don't even mind that I have an unofficial third roommate. The problem is me. I have a completely unwilling, involuntary, internal ick reaction when I see them together. I have the same reaction when I see other same-sex couples around town. I'm ashamed to feel this way, and of course I hide it. I still have this reaction, despite living with Abigail and Betty for almost a year. I feel like a hypocrite, and I'm terrified that I'll slip up and Abigail will see my hidden disgust, which would, of course, really, really hurt her. And no, I'm not a self-closeted lesbian with buried feelings for Abigail. I'm trying but failing to unbrainwash myself. What do I do? How do I make this stop? Man, this one, I, I gotta say, I feel so much um, tenderness and pride for this letter writer in a way that I don't know that I was expecting. Mm. Say more um, about the pride. I, I I will. You know, we will occasionally get letters from somebody who is trying to figure out how they are going to relate to queer people um, because they come from a background uh, where they have been taught that um, it's some sort of compromise of, of one's moral values um, and they sort of want to be nice, but they also disapprove. And there's this sort of question of you know, how much do I really let my true feelings show? And and those questions are fine to ask. And, you know, there's certain rules of politeness uh, and privacy that govern social interactions. And I'm happy to sort of give them generic advice and let them like go on their way without kind of going after hearts and minds. Um, 
But this one feels really different from that. And I think one of the things that I admire so much about this letter writer is um, it's really easy to act in a way that we feel strongly about. Um, And it's really difficult to act, especially in, in a daily, intimate way against really strong ingrained feelings. So the fact that you are aware that your internal reaction to either seeing Abigail and Betty together or other like same gender couples, um, that you get that that is not an accurate reflection of your values, that that's um, a leftover from the ways in which you were raised um, and that you are actively fighting against that on a daily basis. Um, That's really difficult to do. Um, And I think that demonstrates a lot of integrity and a lot of character um, and a really strong sense of who's the person I want to be, not just who is the person it's easiest for me to be. Um, And so I I hope you can give yourself credit for the work that you are already doing. Um, I do also want to answer your question because I I believe that you do need help continuing down this path. But just like give yourself a lot of credit for for taking yourself pretty far down a great path already. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and, And yes, second to that. Kudos to the letter writer. At the same time, it, it feels a little um, unusual to me that a full year of like exposure therapy would not have made a dent in this conditioned response. Oh, I, I can believe it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've, 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 I've seen and known a lot of people who grew up in similar environments, some of whom are straight, some of whom are queer. Um, and, and a lot of people can, shed it quickly um and and for a lot of other people it just it's like taffy in your veins it just sticks to every single crevice of like your interior self um and it takes a really long time to scrub out i mean i I don't think this is usual um like i don't think this is common for people who were raised in really conservative environments and then later um break out of it but I, i i get that um that there would be instances where uh there is still an instinctive reaction even after knowing a lot of people for a long time. Mm. And so do you have any advice for overcoming that? Yeah. And I'd like, I think your goal should be to overcome that because you're going to see a lot of uh, people in, in various relationships uh, in your hopefully long life. Um, and some of them are, are, are going to, you know, produce that feeling in you. And I think you would like to not be distracted much in the same way that any sort of intrusive or compulsive thoughts that, that prevent us from, you know, functioning, from seeing other people as people, from recognizing uh, the, like, loveliness of other people's relationships. Um, I think that's really important. And it's like, again, it seems like you're you you like Abigail and Betty's relationship. It's not like you feel like it's wrong that they're in a relationship together. It's just something physical and visceral in you when you see them like touching as a couple does. Um, and and I, I, I actually haven't recommended therapy for anyone yet today. So I'm going to go ahead and do this with like no sense of it's totally fine. I know I recommend therapy probably too much, but um, I, I think like cognitive behavioral therapy would be really useful. It's kind of like a short term therapy that addresses um, unwanted or unhelpful habits um, or any t- sort of therapy that's geared towards managing obsessive or compulsive thoughts. Um, often that's geared towards people who have been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, which I, I, I don't believe that this is the same thing, but you might find certain techniques techniques that are useful for those people are also useful for you. So I would say find a uh, an LGBT positive therapist um, and somebody who specializes in breaking habits, um, addressing intrusive and unwanted thoughts, um, and really focus on this for like a sustained period of time. Like go more than once a week. Um, hopefully you can find one that like your insurance can help cover um, and really, really try to address what's going on there. Um, I think that this is worth spending a significant amount of time and attention on um, because you can get rid of this. This is not something that has to follow you around for the rest of your life, um, especially given that you already have the desire to not be this way, to not feel this way. Like you, you, you are not getting anything out of this feeling. You don't find it helpful. You don't want to go there. Yeah. She's strongly motivated to change. She, I yeah. like, it, it, imagine how unpleasant your evenings would be if you're hanging out with your friends and they're holding hands and you have to suppress an involuntary reaction of disgust. That it would just be like sounds if every like time, a horrible way to live. 
Right. Like, it would be like if you worked in restaurants and every time you saw a tomato, you just felt, like, disgusted. Um, it would be a real hindrance to your ability to, like, be a person in the world. Like, exactly. there are a lot of tomatoes in restaurants and um, it's just not useful. So I think, yeah, you've got the high motivation to tackle it. You're also really aware that this is not based in reality, um, that there's no part of you that believes that it's, like, the morally right thing to do to feel disgusted. Um, and so I think you are going to be able to, if you really focus on this, break this um break this cycle in the same way that somebody with compulsive nail biting um would would be able to get help which is not to say it will go away immediately overnight and never come back but um you'll at least be able to like hang out with your roommate and her girlfriend um and not periodically have this little like homophobic pinging in the back of your head that's like this is upsetting this is upsetting this is upsetting yep yeah um Man, that's a good luck to this letter writer. I I, I yeah. hope I hope you write us back in a year and and let us know if it's gotten any better, um, and and what that process has looked like for you. I would love to get an update on this one. I find myself feeling super sympathetic to all these letter writers. Do you have that every time? Like, are you like, oh God, I just want this to go okay for all of you? Yes, especially in the podcast, because there's something about reading their letters out loud um, that makes me feel uh, as if I am identifying with them even more than just reading a letter does. Uh Um, And even the ones where, you know, because sometimes I'll get a letter where it feels really clear to me the letter writer is the problem and needs to be informed of this. Um, Even then, I will often feel a degree of sympathy for, for where they are coming from. Um, and like and think, you hope they figure it out. Yeah, no, I don't want them to be in the kind of pain that they're in. And especially today's batch, I think we've got a lot of like pretty well-meaning people. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, last one. One more well-meaning mm-hmm. person. Yep. All right. Um, oh, sorry. I read the last one. This one is you. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so the last one, the last letter is just issues with mom, past and present, which could describe most of our letters. Seriously. Dear Prudence, I am a happily married, career-focused woman approaching 30. I suffer from bouts of depression and anxiety attacks stemming from a myriad of issues, but one main thing is my relationship with my mother. Last Thanksgiving, we had an enormous fight, which usually doesn't happen because I'm used to sweeping my feelings under the rug to keep the peace, in which a lot of my resentment and anger with her came to light. Now she wants me to be open and honest with her, saying that she won't judge me and that she wants our relationship to be fixed. Aside from the fact that she most certainly will judge me, simply going off of past experience, how can I tell her that I'm still feeling angry over things that happened when I was a little kid, or in high school, or even in college? I feel wrong for holding on to things that she probably didn't even know were hurting me, but I can't seem to help it. I've seen a therapist for my anxiety, and we've delved some into the mom issue, but I guess I just need some insight over whether I'm crazy for holding on to so many things from the past. Gabe, is is this letter writer unusual? Um in in holding on to resentments uh, against their parent from stuff that happened in their childhood? You know, I've seen cases like this before. Experts yeah, this agree. is the human condition. Terrible things your mother does when you were a little kid or even in college can still affect you a long time later. Shocking, I know. Even if you are happily married and career-focused and approaching 30. And, and, I had a very nice mom, and and there are things that she did in a well-meaning way that still affect me, and I am even older than 30. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think if nothing else, letter writer, um, you feel – it seems like you, you feel as if there's something wrong with you for holding on to these things um, and as if that's somehow unusual, and I just want you to know – I mean, you pretty much just described the condition of having a mom. You are not alone in this. Um, which is not to say like, get over it. You're just like everybody else. That's not what I mean. But I mean, you're not alone. Um, this is normal. This is a normal way to feel about a parent, even a mostly good, well-meaning parent. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Remembering this stuff. This is that where you your stuff kid. comes from. This is exactly. where it all comes from. And of course you remember primarily this stuff from when you were a child, because that was when you lived with her. Um, and that was also when you did not have the vocabulary to say when something upset you. Right. Like when you're seven years old and your mom says something that you think is really not okay, you're not going to say like, now, mom, we need to talk about our our boundaries and my ability to develop myself as an individual. You're seven. You're you're going to like cry uh, or hide in your room and pretend it didn't happen or. And and you don't have the vocabulary to describe it and you don't have the coping strategies to know what to do with it. Like you are just wide open. You're fucking seven years old. And now your mom has said this awful thing. And Jesus Christ, it's it's carnage in there. Yep. Um, 
So, you know, I, I think you have seen, and I identify with you so much, uh, letter writer, because I, I also love uh, sweeping things under the rug. And I don't think of it as sweeping things under the rug at the time. I just think, well, it's not worth having conflict over this. Um, I'm sure it'll get better. Um, and, you know, something I have to learn uh, over and over again is that it's actually much better to tell someone when something bothers me when I'm at like a two and a three on a scale of one to ten instead of waiting until it's a nine or a ten and like throwing plates at Thanksgiving. Uh, not that you were throwing plates or, or that I have thrown plates, just... Um, it, it makes things a lot better when you talk about things uh, before you feel overwhelmed. Um, and and also, you know, I think it's great that your mom wants you to be open and honest with, with her. Um, and I just want to say, like, you know, you say you know that she will judge you. Um, and I think one thing that you should just know going into this new phase of your relationship, that's fine. It's fine if you bring something up to your mom and her first reaction is judgmental. Um, you still get to feel that way and you actually still get to articulate and defend your position and explain why you feel the way that you feel. Um, and you can absolutely say like, mom, I'm getting a lot of judgment from you right now. Uh, can you, you know, take a minute, put that aside, listen to what I'm saying and, and, and hear how I'm telling you this made me feel, um, like you don't have to just say, well, she judged me. So this conversation's over. Like she can judge you and you're a grown woman and you can disagree. Yeah, I, I, I think you and I are on the same page with regard to whether or not the letter writer is crazy for holding on to so many things from the past. Right. And then I think we're on different pages with regard to like, is going into all of this with the letter writer's mother a good idea? I sort of feel like the letter writer, they had a big fight. And a lot of the resentment and anger came out. And now the mom is saying, you know, be open and honest with me. I want to fix our relationship. I won't judge you. The letter writer says she most certainly will judge me going off past experiences of trying to open up to her. And I feel like the letter writer's spidey sense is tingling. And hmm. she's feeling like this is a trap. Ah. And I might listen to that a little bit. Like if I, I guess what I would say to the letter writer is if you feel like your mom is saying she wants you to open up just so that she can like get in there and make you feel shitty again, maybe stay away from that trap. Maybe don't do that. Maybe what you need to do is not open up to your mom. Maybe what you need to do is close off to your mom and open up to your therapist. Maybe what you need to do is like go really deep into all the little kid in high school and college stuff about your mom with your therapist and to your mom, just be very polite and saying, thanks for being open to talking, mom, and maybe we will at some point. But right now, I need to sort this stuff out on my own. And mm, isn't this coffee delicious? Yes, I definitely agree uh, with parts of this, which is uh, like taking time and processing through more of this stuff with a therapist, a therapist before you have bigger conversations with your mom. Absolutely. It's also really okay to say to your mom, I'm not ready to go into this with you again. I, I think it, it's a lot. It's really big. Um, and I need some time. Um, so let's put this conversation off for a while. I think that's fine, too. Uh, and I'm always supportive of, of letter writers who, who have parents who are just like incapable of listening um, or who have been abusive uh, or just really, really critical and cruel um, who need to limit their contact with their parents. Absolutely. But um, I do want to put in at least a plug for giving it a shot because it, it sounds like this letter writer um, has mostly not tried the route of um, – having more honest conversations with her mom. And, and, you know, maybe occasionally when they have tried, uh, they have felt judged. And it's certainly possible, even likely, that their their mother has really made the conversation impossible. But given that you're at least getting a partial green light from your mom now, um, you know, if, if a part of you would like to try, and that doesn't mean it's going to go great right away, or even that it's going to work, you might try, it doesn't work, and you do decide to retreat and be a little more closed off to her, you absolutely should be able to do that. But I think it's worth giving it a shot. If, if what she's saying is, no, I do want to know you better. It's hard for me not to respond with judgment, but I want to try to do that. Even just to say, like, you don't have to talk about this all right now. You can even just say, like, mom, I do want to tell you more about how I feel about things. Um, my fear is that if I do, you will respond with judgment and criticism um, and and say that. And, you know, if she hears that, then that might be a sign you guys can have a follow-up conversation, maybe just about one or two things. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to do it like biggest thing first. 
Um, and if her response to that is just way off the mark, then you can kind of say, OK, she she thinks she wants to, but she's actually not prepared to have an honest conversation with me. Um, I'm going to, you know, withdraw some of my emotional energy from my relationship with her and focus it in, in therapy or elsewhere. Um, but, you know, take the green light. Try to proceed a little further before deciding that this isn't worth it. Unless you just absolutely don't want to. You don't have to, but it, it might be nice. Yeah, I think you and I both have like plausible readings of the mother's intentions from this letter. And, and right. the letter itself doesn't uh, give us enough evidence to come down conclusively on one side or the other. But I bet you the letter writer knows. Yep. Yep. I think that you have the best sense of how your mom is. Um, and, I, you know, your your main question, uh, I, as I am rereading it, was not um, necessarily the how do I tell her part. Um, it, it was I just want to know whether or not I'm crazy. And the answer is no, you are not. Um, just as crazy as all the rest of us letter writers. Yeah. So, you know, if you have that desire to tell her, maybe don't say like, mom, here is a laundry list of everything I've never told you that I'm furious about. And you get to get the full force of my anger now. Um, but think through, like, what are the main things you would like to say to her? How would you express like, mom, here's what I would love for our relationship to look like. I would love a relationship where I could be honest with you. And I felt like you would listen and pause before you came back with a response um, and that you would really hear me. And I'm afraid that we won't get to have that. And like, if you can say that to her, you might find yourself feeling a lot better, even if she's not able to give you what you want in return, just to be able to articulate the kind of relationship you'd like to have with her um, might be meaningful. Yeah. And then with the therapist, just go all the fucking way into it. Oh, you know my God. I mean? Write it the down. Everything my stuff. mom did yeah. wrong. Absolutely. The stuff go that nuts. you can't believe you're still hung up on, like whatever that is that you're like, why am I still thinking about this stupid thing? Talk about that. Just like four sessions in a row where you just That's walk right. in the door and the first thing out of your mouth is, and another that thing this bitch did. That's the good um, stuff right there. That's the good stuff right there. Um, Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So much fun. This was this was it. I feel ready to parent and be parented right now. Uh, I look forward to returning to my own experience of parenting and being parented. Oh. Friends, uh, that was one of the most draining episodes uh, I've done in recent memory. Uh, I think I need to go lie down with a cold compress. But before I go, um, I want to remind you all something uh, about herpes, which is I get a fair amount of questions in the column about herpes, which is great uh, because I think we should all be learning more about herpes. Um but I recently got a letter that illustrated a common misconception that seems to pop up a lot in this column, um, which is that people really don't seem to understand what herpes is, which is one of the most common STIs it's possible to have, uh, something that roughly one in six Americans between the ages of like 15 and 50 have, um, something that while not curable um, is very treatable. Um, and with uh, medication and protected sex and not having sexual contact uh, when one is going through an outbreak. Um, many, many people, by the way, with herpes do not have many outbreaks. Some have none, whatever. Um, but I, I think this public perception is that herpes is like this really huge deal. And if you get it, that's shocking and, and upsetting. And, um, you know, if you someone knew you had herpes, that would just be the end. Um, and that's that's really not the case. But I, I got a letter from from someone who was convinced their partner was cheating on them and, and went through their phone and asked them and they couldn't find any evidence and the person wouldn't admit it. So finally, they they faked having herpes um, and said, I just got back from, you know, the, the clinic and I've been tested and I have herpes and it must be because you cheated on me. And they finally got their partner to break down and confess, which is its own separate issue. But I, I just want to say, if you're going to fake having some sort of sexually transmitted infection, um, don't pick one that is incredibly common and that you could have easily contracted uh, before you met your partner and simply not noticed for a really long time. Like, don't fake sexually transmitted infections at all. Um, maybe that should be the clearest point. But but if you're going to, don't don't make it herpes because um, because that's just that's just not going to help you make a strong case. But really, don't lie about uh, your medical records in order to force your partners to tell the truth. Um, and also, uh, you know, go learn a little bit more about herpes. With that, 
Uh, I wish you all a safe, happy, and healthy next week. Uh, And I'll see you guys back here in a couple of days. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. It's a positive thing that you can do in a world full of wind and ghosts. If you want to hear me answer your question, call and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. ship is that? It's a whaling ship, doctor. <laughs>